Alright, and we are live! Welcome, fiends, to Handle with Scare, presented by the Slashing Cast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias they emphasize. With me tonight, as always, are my co-hosts, Holly Hooch and John. So guys, new month, new phobia, uh... Probably, uh, maybe not the best fit in one, but I figured this is a good bridging point because we just finished a bug phobia. Uh, right. we have a uh, angsty teenager who is sneaking out of her house to collect bugs, uh, in this dystopian future. Uh, and uh, we d- we're dealing with a lot of like surgery, like su- surgery and drug addiction, uh, very reminiscent of uh, what we saw out of Bug. So I felt like, you know, we had a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So I'm like, eh, what the hell? We could totally make this work for uh, for what we're starting tonight here. You know, if you want to shoot. <laughs> so we're not in the same room uh, this week, John and I. I'm, although I'm calling in all the way from Ohio. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, uh, go back to this more difficult format. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I was going to say, though, there, there was also a circus. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had the circus and bugs. It's all linking together. And Paul Sorvino. Oh, my God, Paul Sorvino. I was going to say, <laughs> T, if you want to shoehorn in your favorite movie, even though it doesn't fit in with the phobia, that's totally fine with me. I did it with Santa Sangre. I think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a culmination of all of the parts. And, uh, you know, it makes for an interesting movie because it's not one that uh, I know a lot of people ha- that have seen, even though it, it has kind of grown like a cult uh, following, right. similar to what we saw with Rocky Horror, which is, you know, also horror slash musical. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll get into our movie here in just a bit. So just a couple of reminders. Every Thursday on Stream Lounge, we've been doing watch parties. Uh, I had to push back the start time because of uh, my my podcast schedule kind of shift in on, on Thursday. So the movie nights are going to be starting a little bit later at 9.15 p.m. Pacific time. And we're doing more shutter selects. Uh, so tomorrow we'll be watching A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, which is a great movie. And then I can't wait for next week because I know Shudder has The Sadness uh, debuting here later in a week, which is one that I've been looking forward to uh, that's been causing quite the stir on the festival scene with the amount of sheer gore in it. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Exciting. Exciting. Uh, my father-in-law won't stop talking about a movie called The Black Phone, so I gotta go check that out. Have you guys seen previews it's, for that yet? It's not out yet. Is it? Is it a horror movie? It's the uh, Ethan Hawke one. Oh, okay. I didn't what know anything it? about it either. He just brought it up at dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah, it comes out uh, late in June, I believe. Oh. If I'm not mistaken. Sounds good. Yeah, it's definitely one well, I, I have my eye on. But, you know, that's a little bit further down the pipeline. Tonight, we are here to kick off our uh, phobia of uh, fear of age. Uh, and we're kicking things off with Repo the Genetic Opera. That's right. We're talking to rock opera tonight on the uh, on a podcast. Probably not one you guys would expect we'd be covering, but there are plenty of horror elements uh, so, you know, we're, we're going from the absurdity of mutated wasps killing uh, to their heart's content in a literal B-movie uh, with the return of Trioxin. And uh, tonight we find ourselves in a world of drug addiction and legalized murder. Exciting times, right? Like, here we are in, uh, what, it's like 2046 or something. And it's a it's a pretty interesting movie with just the way that things are laid out and the storytelling being done kind of with the uh, like the comic book cells, you know, kind of reminiscent of what we would get out of, uh, of Creepshow. But with Repo, as I mentioned last week, what was really interesting about this was the way that this movie was kind of brought around because... Uh, you had Darren Bousman, who had a really hard time, like, actually getting this movie made when he was bringing it to the studio. They didn't really want to fund it, despite the fact that uh, the early Saw movies 
made quite a bit of money with not a lot of budget. So you would think, okay, you know, this is kind of, it's an easy, you know, cash grab in this case, because it's, you know, cheaper horror movies, they make good money. Come to find out, you know, he's got this idea of this really weird movie, but it's a hard sell to the studios. (laughs) Yeah, because it's a rock opera. I mean, I don't know where the mystery is there. Yeah. Yeah, so what does he do? He creates this 10-minute short film uh, after realizing that talking about it just isn't enough, uh, regardless of what sort of, like, excitement level he was at, uh, because it is a weird project. Uh, And, you know, this film would basically premiere at Fantastic Fest, and then they kind of did, like, a traveling tour where they hit seven different cities uh, to premiere the film for the fans out there, and they would do, like, lengthy Q&As during this tour. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to actually talk about the cast of this movie, because this movie does a pretty interesting thing in regards to the cast, and where most of the people are musicians in this movie, and they are musically trained to to varying degrees, which I thought was a really smart approach to do this. It wasn't just outright, hey, I want an actor who can sing. You do have classically trained opera singers right. in this rock opera. No, I was actually really impressed with the casting. I, I thought the casting was really well done, and that includes the Paris Hilton insert there. I mean, I think considering given the, the time this movie was out, it was a good, easy way to get attention. And it was a good, easy way to get some money. Mm. And, you know, I don't I don't fault them for doing that at all. And also the way they cast her into the role of a spoiled brat. I mean, <laughs> not to put down Paris Hilton too much because that's old. That's old hat. But um, but, you know, like, you know, it's 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 within her wheelhouse. <laughs> so I, I was really happy with the casting. And maybe we can talk about Anthony Stewart head later or now. What are we thinking? I mean, we'll go through the full cast here in just a minute. Oh, OK, okay. <laughs> I'm just so excited. <laughs> Yeah, so so looking at at the cast here, you have Alexa Vega as Shiloh, uh, who is the ancient teenager who has been confined to her room uh, due to the supposed blood disorder that she inherited from her mother, uh, who is deceased uh, in this case. Uh, who is like the main protagonist of this film and kind of is. Kind of put into this, like, trap situation where it's set up into play where you have, like, the Repo Man, who is also her father in this case. Uh, and you have uh, Roddy Largo, who is the uh, CEO of Genco, which, you know, we'll describe here in just a minute. But, like, he's trying to pass off this company because he is dying to Shiloh. But all she has to do is basically, like, hey, you know deal with this problem, kill your father, and then the company is all yours. All, has, all she has to do. Th- doesn't really come to that, though. And also, well, Alexa Vega from the Spy Kids movies, and didn't she do another one with uh, Rodriguez as well? What was uh, was she in one of the uh, the Grindr, Grindhouse movies? No. She wasn't mm-hmm. in the- Maybe it's like a background character, but not as a Maybe. main character. But, you know, but that was, you know, as I was seeing her, I was like, wow, she looks really familiar. And then, you know, lo and behold, she is from Spy Kids and she's got some fame there. I mean, also, you mentioned the opera singer that is cast in this movie as well, who does an amazing job. And then you got Paul Servino. And so now can we talk about Sir Anthony Stewart Head? I know he's nominated, <laughs> but here's hoping. So I so, of course, uh, the watcher from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was, uh, you know, the decade before this was what, in 2008? Buffy came out in, you know, uh, uh, 96, I believe. So he was always, he was always a really wonderful actor. And I remember that they did a reunion to a reunion where they, uh, it was a tribute to Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he, of course, dressed up as uh, uh, Dr. Frankfurter and he did a really good job singing. And I, and I've seen images of him online where I think either this, the, this was released, the, the tribute was recorded and released. Or maybe he just did his own goddamn thing, but he, he's really, really good. And I've never seen him actually perform as a singer before. So to see this movie and see him be so front and center, and incidentally, he did a really good job, all right? 
He did a really great acting job. He did a really, really great singing job. I loved him so hard in this movie. And I just wanted to put that out there and say that. <laughs> Sir Anthony Stewart had thumbs up. He was definitely one of the standouts of the movie, kind of the main character almost more than uh, Shia in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, definitely more going on with him, her kind of character's a little on the flat side, right? It's an angsty teenager trying to get away from her dad and also sequestered. It's it's a little cookie cutter. I think Alex, Alexa Vega did a really good job in it, but also the role itself didn't really ask for that much. Uh, but yeah, so I thought like Spotlight was definitely on Sir Anthony Stewart Head. Well, she brought Joan Jett into the fold, so I can't be too mad That's at her. true. <laughs> and also, I have to admit, like, in that scene where she's singing and she's having her punk rock moment, mm-hmm. and they had that little teddy bear in the background that was doing, like, that was that, that was headbanging, and I, was, I thought that was the best thing ever. <laughs> she really liked the teddy bear. <laughs> All right. So, so, oh, yep. I kept wondering who the grave digger was or the grave robber. Mm-hmm. Was he someone? I I meant to look him up, but is he any in anything since or before? He looked familiar. Was he? He was one of the writers, was he? I know that he was a trained musician. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, he might be one of the writers, right? I'm trying to remember who actually played him. I want to say his name is Ogre. Well, uh, Ogre is the guy. He's no, wait. I'm thinking of Pobby. Okay, the grave robber. Um, the face guy who wore the skin. I'm seeing who the grave robber was. Terrence uh, Sadunik? I think he was one of the writers then, right? Someone involved in the production. And I haven't started talking about the movie yet, so I don't know if this is too early or if we want to save it for later, but I tried to do a little research because I have vague memories of this when it came out, mm-hmm. and Big memories of the fact that they it was a stage play before the movie and that it was kind of successful. It wasn't a big hit, but that it was like kind of a cult, um, you know, hit. And I tried to look it up and couldn't find a lot about what was go what went on with the stage play before the movie. And I even looked on YouTube to see if I could find any of the live, you know, a, a live version of it. And only found a clip that I don't think is from the original. I think it's from uh, someone did it after. Mm. But I don't know if you guys checked into that, but the stage play part of it. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really having any luck with that either, because I was trying to find stuff from like the, the source material. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if they're just being tight lips about it or if it was just like a timing issue or, or what the ordeal was. But, you know, we, we kind of had uh, the confusion uh, a little bit between this movie and Repo Man, which came out a couple of years later, because both of them deal with uh, Repo Men who go out and take back uh, organs, basically. Uh, and there's there are some striking similarities between uh, the two uh, in regards to just the way that the, the story is outlined. But, you know... We're here to talk about the rock opera. Uh, and, you know, one of the big roles in this movie is Roddy Largo, who is played by Paul Zerbino, uh, who is the alien founder and president of Gene Co. Uh, and he is dying and he's looking to, like, find a worthy heir to his throne and doesn't want to leave the company to his three dipshit children uh, who are Luigi Largo, played by Bill Mosley, uh, who is the eldest of the three he's a homicidal guy who is often uh wielding a knife he is easily unhinged and just constantly killing people whenever he's on screen uh you have ogre playing pavi largo who is the middle child uh who wears the skin face of women as a mask over his own Uh, and you know he's all he's often like flocked by the uh, Jane Co. Women, yeah, like the interns, basically. Uh, and then the third child being Paris Hilton, who plays Amber Sweet, uh, who is Roddy's only daughter, who has uh, some addiction issues with Zydrate, uh, as well as surgery. Uh, and, you know, what, what I love about this is Paris Hilton 
at this time when she was taking on these roles in the genre, both this and in the House of Wax remake, uh, really striking scenes in regards to moments with her character. In this case, her face falls off after uh, a recent surgery, the night of the opera, uh, and she basically just gets her face impaled in House of Wax, which is a great scene as well. Uh, but you have kind of like that back and forth between all the kids, like, no, like, that should leave the business to me. And then, of course, here he is, like, I don't want to deal with any of you. You know, you're all the disgrace. So Bill Mosley, who uh, played one of my favorite uh, horror characters, played head Texas. What's that? John, you cut out. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, I also wanted to point out that Bill Mosley played my favorite horror movie character, uh, Platehead from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's great. A big fan of him. And uh, yeah, you know, the kids, they do their scene where they are all kind of competing with each other. And the skin-faced guy, who very much looks like a cartoon character shown in the anime uh, throughout the movie and he pretty much looks exactly like the animated version of his or the comic version of his character it was great definitely I thought those were a lot of fun Um, uh, I I didn't really I I think the sexy henchwomen kind of took me out of it a little bit because you mentioned John that like the movie can just because of the style that it uses can it very easily dates itself. Right. And, uh, but it is enjoyable, particularly now when you can look back to the early two thousands and see the aesthetic and really kind of appreciate it for what they were going for. But I feel like, you know, the the sexy henchwomen have kind of fallen out of favor a little bit (laughs) in in current cinema, but uh, it was still kind of fun as, you know, a little bit, but it did take me out a a bit out of that. But outside of that, I, I really, I had a. I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. It was pretty obvious that they had all raided Paris's wardrobe. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Paris. The funny thing about Paris at that time was she had the re- show mm-hmm. famous for, and she wanted to branch out, and so she did House of Wax and this movie. And I think she kind of shot herself in the foot with her reality show because disliked in terms of her character on that show mm. that I think when she finally branched out and was like and is like legitimately good she's not great or amazing but she's legitimately good at both of those roles it kind of didn't matter and people were just kind of blew it off that's you true know? it's just the the fad to uh to put her down because mm. she uh, the personality or the persona that she puts out there, which is very likely her personality, is just a little bit obnoxious and like, you know, just yeah. enviable rich girl that doesn't care about shit other than herself kind of persona. But on, let's be completely real. I think most, probably most people that are super famous are have the same shit going on, right? They're just better about hiding it. But not me, guys. If I get to be rich, I'll always be nice. <laughs> So I have to bring up and ask right at the beginning because it relates to the beginning of the movie okay. and the general story. Something I would we've seen this movie a little bit before years ago, but I don't think I finished it. And then I finished it this time. Um, I was a little confused because the Repo Man, the dad, which you know is sort of a review. We know it have to be relatively soon in the movie, but the other characters don't. So in the introduction part, they talk about how repoing organs becomes legal, and it becomes something that they do, you know, in, in these this corporation. But the thing I was a little confused about is that him as the repo man, he was sort of operating underground, and they really seeming to be happy with what he was doing. And he was obviously operating. But it felt like what he was doing was sort of looked at as illegal or bad. 
and he was sort of operating underground. Where he probably he didn't want people to know his uh, his identity in case they went after him for being a repo man, because it is kind of a nasty job. I mean, I'm sure we can think of other jobs that are perfectly legal that people hide their identity to perform. Yeah, true, true. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed like he was like the only repo man, really, that we were we were seeing. Well, he kept saying, "I'm not taking this job; give it to somebody else." I assume there were other repo men, but uh, maybe there weren't that many. Mm. Although, if this is a big ass company, they're going to need more than one, right? Yeah. Well, regardless, he probably had the biggest debt out of, or maybe the only debt in regards to the repo men that were on the staff. Mm, good point. Yeah. The human resources background of all the repo men, that's something we should definitely get into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since we have no details on that front. Uh, but anyways, we are in the year 2056, amid an epidemic of organ failures. Uh, and here comes Geneco at the forefront as a mega corporation providing the people with organ transplants uh, through payment plans. So don't worry if you can't afford it. Uh, you know, you just basically have to... Uh, Sign your life away if you don't make a payment, uh, leading to some fatal consequences where the clients are hunted down by said repo men. Uh, so, as I mentioned, there's a decent amount of backstory explained through the comic book panels, and one of the cool things about this movie is you do get background for most of the major players in this movie at various times. And there are points where everything kind of like intertwines once we get to uh, the genetic opera later on in the movie. Uh, so you have Roddy Largo, the president of Geneco, who finds out that he is a dying man. And of course, in this situation, you hate to be the bigger bad news because what happens the henchwomen shoot him to death. Hate to see it. <laughs> Which is always a funny moment. Uh, but, you know, early on we meet Shiloh, who, typical teenager, sneaking out of the house. Uh, she's still trying to stay close to her mother post-mortem by visiting her mausoleum. Uh, and that's when she, like, follows this bug outside in hopes of catching it. Now, I, I don't know if, like, Shiloh has a collection of bugs or what her fascination is with bugs at the time maybe it's just the freedom that they have that she didn't really have because she was just being locked inside her house uh for her entire childhood leading up to this point uh but it's there where we meet the grave robber who kind of serves as uh kind of like the narrator of the story on a few occasions through throughout this movie uh but you you have this whole uh, drug addiction issue right now when it all stems through the grave robber because he's the supplier of Zydrate and you know they're basically going in to extract Zydrate from uh, the dead like the brains of like the corpses uh, and it, it's such a big issue that you know there are signs plastered everywhere uh, warning signs that hey like any grave robbers will get shot on site, basically. So anyone who's in a cemetery is probably up to no good and shouldn't be there. Yes. <laughs> We're like, agreed. He definitely was the narrator uh, of the movie and it kind of introduced aside from the animation part. But yeah, no, he was cool. He had a good, he had a good his song uh, about injecting, you know, you put the needle here. I can't remember how it goes, but he had, he had probably some of the better songs of the oh yeah of the rock opera. I was gonna say it's, it just struck me. So Shiloh is a sequestered teenager who's she's only been living like in bed, getting medication, taking having rest, and then maybe sneaking out at night. But she's a great candidate to take over an international company. <laughs> completely inexperienced, never gone a day to, you know, to school in her life. Good idea, Ronnie. Yeah, well, Ronnie knows the truth behind uh, her her illness. Doesn't change the fact that she hasn't done shit in seventeen years. I mean, saying? yeah, that, I mean that that is factually accurate. She has not done anything <laughs> except being stuck in her castle. Well, I think it's just that. So she's obviously 
better choice than any of his actual kids. <laughs> but and also, I think he likes her. He's really into her because she's the daughter of a woman the, that he and he was in love with her. So he's like, "You're like my, you know, sort of adopted daughter or whatever, right. you know, sort of goddaughter." Well, also has that weird thing where he gives her um, the mother's dress. Which just ends up being a black miniskirt dress with no strap, a strapless satin miniskirt dress. Which I know she had like a bunch of like veils at first, and then she took some stuff off. But you never got to see the dress, and all I can think about really was like, is that her mom's dress, the, the tube top dress? That's <laughs> 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 that really valuable dress that had to be passed down. <laughs> yeah, she definitely had some of those baby doll dresses that were popular back at that oh, time. Oh yeah, for sure. It, it, Hulk bands like whole and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that was cool. The, the st- it was definitely nostalgic. Um, you mentioned it earlier, but we had been kind of talking earlier about how I had mentioned earlier, not in the recording, that when I was watching this movie uh, just the other day, I feel like I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I. I tried watching it back then, and I know, too, that I enjoyed it and that I didn't enjoy it as much back then when it came out, but I can appreciate it a lot more now. But it, it does feel, it's so of its time. It's, I also mentioned it reminds me a lot, the music and the look and feel of that band Evanescence. Mm-hmm. Wait, remember? Wake Me Up. It felt like... That era, and and that Zack Snyder, um, what was that Zack Snyder movie with the women? And the, there's like the Japanese anime. He kind of mashes up all the pop culture stuff. You're talking about uh, Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch, yeah, yeah. Just of that era. It, this movie was very different than Sucker Punch, but if you could, if that era that we've actually gotten to the point where we can have nostalgia for the you know, 2008 year. I thought the henchwomen uh, reminded me of the Addicted to Love video women. (laughs) Might as well admit it, you're addicted to love. And I just kind of really was hoping they would break out into song tour doing that really like robotic dance that they do. (laughs) The fembots. The fembots. Yeah, that, that that didn't quite happen. Uh, So back at the cemetery, we have the, the grave robber who helps Shiloh retreat uh, as they're like kind of doing like a sweep around the area looking for intruders. Uh, but, you know, with her blood pressure problem, she ends up fainting and wakes up in her bedroom where she finds who else but her overprotective father, Nathan, kind of hovering over her. Uh, so basically, Nathan, as a father, has done his best to keep Shiloh safe by keeping her locked inside the house for her entire life. Great idea. Uh, but, you know, Nathan has, you know, his work life, uh, which is being kept a secret from his daughter uh, because, you know, maybe just fears that revealing any sort of truth would just break her trust in this case. Uh, and obviously, like, you probably don't want your daughter knowing, like, hey, I murder people for a living, but don't worry, it's legal. Because so somehow that horrible. makes it better. <laughs> Was it just me? I feel like I'm starting to realize this may just be my interpretation. But I feel like he was out there still rebuilding those organs, using them to try to help his daughter do what he was like supposed to be doing. In terms of well, he was definitely ha- somehow harvesting that same drug that the drug dealer was getting, right? Because that's that was the medicine that she was taking, right? Except like in smaller doses. Diluted in water and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But Which I think also, maybe oh, go ahead. that was part of like the whole deal where like I'll repo for you, but you also have to look the other way when I do my my scientific experiments, which are not very scientific at all. This movie definitely was kind of ahead of the curve and sort of accidentally pre addiction in America, where everybody becomes addicted to one specific painkiller which i kind of started around 2000 around that a little bit prescient <laughs> and i also to just throw out there real quick 
rock operas. I'm a huge fan of rock operas, so I do appreciate this. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have probably watched like Phantom of Paris. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to see that great movie. Um, and and then the lesser, uh, the one with Kiss, which I think was also called Phantom of the Amusement Park. I think it almost has a similar kind of saying. <laughs> Where Kiss is like playing music and shooting lasers out of the- I didn't know that about you, that you love rock opera. I have to admit, I'm a little like on the fence. I like them a little bit, but I like uh, musicals a little better if there's like a little bit of like speaking parts in between the numbers. Just because mm-hmm. uh, that part where you sing really mundane lines of dialogue mm-hmm. doesn't really land with me that well. <laughs> you know, it's like, they do another letter in the house. And you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> They do that a bit in this movie. Not a lot, but it, there are a few scenes where they're kind of singing the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, basically every Paul Servino part, which is fine, actually. I didn't mind it from him because I felt like it was better than hearing him sing, so I was okay with that. Uh, we we, we, we got to talk about the children bickering over the inheritance, though, because that was definitely one of the more comedic parts of the movie. It was cute. Uh, because, you know, you have Bill Mosley, who's just saying that, uh, you know, he'll just f- fuck any hole. And if there's not one, he'll just create one, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, of course, like, he's just brutally stabbing one of the interns. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, Poppy's just... Uh, all over the women there, of course, too. But, you know, it just seems like a game of, like, one-upsmanship uh, when it comes to killing the intern in that sort of situation. But, you know, not not a whole lot of brains between the two of them in this case. Mm. Oh, the three of them. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, and also it's a, a certainly, like, a something that, a trope, I guess, that you that's kind of just used, and I don't know if it's true, but just, like, you know, just overly privileged children that never are really challenged to grow and and mm. end up kind of even though like their parents are super overachievers you know mm-hmm. by by neglecting their own kids and giving them just too much privilege then they don't develop properly themselves too in terms of like trying to achieve more and i'm making all this shit up for sure but <laughs> that's what i think <laughs> yeah definitely i think that's what they were going for that's why yeah, yeah sure. think, and it's really why? common in movies yeah and why he liked Shiloh to ha- he wanted to pick her to take over because she wasn't a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, she was she was so pure at that time before she had her pop punk ballad where she called herself a fucking monster. But that's later in the movie. Uh, but basically, Roddy's plan here is okay. I'm not forget my kids. They're not inheriting shit. I'm going to give everything to Shiloh, and the easiest way for me to get her where I need her is to invite her to the genetic opera that Jinko uh, is hosting. Uh, and that's where Shiloh gets to meet a blind Meg, uh, who, you know, all this time had believed that Shiloh had died at birth, and Meg was good friends with uh, Marnie, who is Shiloh's mother. Uh, and... You know, we, we have this really funny interaction when, like, you know, Shiloh's out of the house, Nathan is out doing Repo Man stuff, and he's, like, butchering this guy who's strung upside oh. down, uh, taking out, like, I think it was the spinal cord uh, in this mm-hmm. scene. Uh, and he's just calling his daughter, like, hey, have you taken, you know, your medication? Your medicine, your medicine. Yeah, and this whole time, like, he's butchering this one guy. There's all this, you know, ambiance noise in the background at this uh this devil's carnival in this case uh i'll 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 mention that later in the movie because that does kind of like spin off into like its own thing uh which is somewhat connected to this movie but it's also a spin-off just in general uh but you know that's back and forth and both of them are trying to keep what they're doing a secret from the other and they're both yeah, trying right. to uh get back home as quickly as possible because like her dad thinks that she's there and she doesn't know where he is. So they're both trying to rush their job, get back and not know what the other person was doing or just not like expose their hand basically in this case, which I thought was funny. And sure enough, Shiloh was able to escape uh, the hen- henchwoman guards of Roddy uh, thanks to the grave robber who comes into play 
yet again. So, you know, I thought it was interesting with the Grave Robber. He always seems to be uh, at the right location at the right time, but he is a central part of a lot of the problems in the world in this movie. <laughs> Definitely. Well, so it, if I'm understanding right too, Gene co-created a painkiller that people was very popular, but the Grave created sort of a cheaper alternative that he creates from the box. And so he's sort of able to undercut Jinko's prices mm -hmm. and get everyone. Even the daughter of what I'm forgetting uh Paul Sorvino's character's name, but even Paris's character takes the grave robber's drug instead which you would think she would have access to. And so she's I mean her dad's being pretty tight with that stuff because she's uh she's got that uh surgery addiction, mm. which is pretty gruesome too, actually. I enjoyed that uh but so she's taking the drug so that she doesn't feel the pain as much or right because then she's like oh now i can't feel anything let's you know let's do another operation which is a botched face operation which i thought was pretty cool and then her dad gets her a new face but then it wasn't put on properly <laughs> and also when uh, the grave robber and shiloh are kind of running around to end up in that giant room full of bodies yeah bodies, yeah Jackpot. <laughs> he doesn't. It's funny. He doesn't say anything, but you can just see from his reaction that he's excited. He just found the mother load of of drug. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, he's yeah, great character for sure. Yeah, it was I a it was a honeypot for him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but again, yeah, no, the kind of the theme of the plastic. taking painkiller to deal with the surgery very timely very ahead of its time so we can talk a little bit about uh blind maga what's the uh the opera singer's name oh just like the act the actual actress who plays right. blind mag uh right. i have that was pretty fantastic earlier. and she is a straight up opera singer yeah it actress. is uh sarah brightman right so I don't know if she's, I should have looked her up. Um, I'm guessing she's been in a ton of musicals, uh, like, you know, film stuff rather than just stage. Am I right about that? I, I'm, I know she's classically trained. I don't know, like, what her pedigree is, though. Because, I mean, like, her pipes are pretty incredible. And I thought she did, she looked amazing and she did a really good job. And I, um, uh, towards the the climax of the movie, which is just the, you know, the, the big presentation, the opera that I guess happens, what, like, what, what kind of frequency is it? Nightly opera or something? It kind of felt like it was nightly. <laughs> but like, it was all staged to be like her last song, basically. Right. And then I know she's got these big old long nails and you know, like she's going to go for her own eyes. But even when she did it, I was still surprised and it was still pretty gruesome and fun. So like her death scene was pretty awesome. And the eyes were cool too. They, did some cool animation and effects on her eyes, which looked really good. I kind of wish there'd spend more time between Meg and uh, and Shiloh, though, because, I mean, they only have, like, one real interaction. We're like, hi, I knew your mom. And she was like, cool. All right, we're best friends now. <laughs> so... <laughs> wasn't enough... What's that? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just kind of wish they would have developed that friendship a little bit more, and, they, mm -hmm. and it would have been nice that there was a little bit more background between her and Nathan as well. I kind of, I mean, I know that this is what the second in a, in a trilogy, right? Well, this is technically, this is technically, it, it was planned to be the second of a trilogy, but this was the only one that was released. And then you had the spinoff, The Devil's Carnival, and then you had a sequel to that. Okay, so I mean, I'm guessing that they felt like they had to squeeze on all the, all this background, all the information in and maybe cut some stuff out. But it would have been it would have been nice to see a little bit more developing of that relationship because I thought she was a really great character. Mm -hmm. And while I thought that her screen time was sufficient, I just kind of wish that I would have had more emotional investment in her relationship with Shiloh and Nathan. Yeah, it just got also, interrupted by Nathan because as, as soon as she saw Blind Mag at the house, she, he basically just kicked her out after a small argument. Right. And I wouldn't have minded a little romance between Nathan and Mag. I'll just put it. I'll put that out there. I thought they both look really good. I don't oh. see. Happen. People have needs. 
I, I need mean, to put them together. <laughs> I kept wondering because you know this the scene when uh, she first meets Shiloh and she's projecting the right. image of Shiloh's mother and she's telling her how she was but didn't know about her and all that. Yeah, there's, when, a, there's a lot of truth being kept from a lot of the characters in this movie. Mm-hmm, definitely. But I, I kept wondering too as a technical thing because in the live play, I was like, I wonder if they, they did some cool projection thing where they were projecting. Yeah, I'm not sure. Was projecting, you know, in the actual stage. But I figured they must have been doing something because they made some. have done that live. Mm-hmm. But I, just real quick, I did find, I, like I said, I don't. Was a, I don't know if it was from the live play before the movie or after, but it was, it was cool. They had a full band, and uh, the singers were really good, and they had the, like, intern women, and it was one of those early songs, but it was just one clip of a song. But yeah, a lot of stuff being hidden, and I also want to call out something I picked up on as I was watching, is that this that's updated into kind of a free, but it's definitely the type of, you know, it could have taken place in a big British manor house in the 1800s with the sick daughter oh, and yeah. the scientist father, you know, and <sighs> it, it has that kind of uh, period of drama, mm. but updated. Well, you know, it's very goth for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more ways than one. <laughs> definitely, there were definitely a few goth looks going on with, especially with Shiloh, and the uh, I forget the character's name, but the the blind, uh, yeah, blind man, yeah, definitely. Oh, and there was a really cool shot of her too, where kind of a was only for a few, but really cool. She was definitely one of the game characters I yeah. think really stood out. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so uh, obviously, like everything's leading to this genetic opera that's taking place. Uh, and you have Roddy who's announcing, like, okay, Blind Mag is going to be making her final appearance. Uh, and also, Amber, his daughter, is going to be the new spokesperson. Uh, for the Zydrate support network, uh, which is very fit in, considering that she is actually uh, addicted to Zydrate herself. I don't know how how well that's actually uh, going to work, uh, but you know nothing really came from that uh, part of the story, at least at least with like her having like the support network. Uh, but you know, as we mentioned, like. Zydrate has been harvested from the corpses, uh, you know, the brains of them, and being peddled to all the drug addicts, uh, and, you know, it's used to ease the pain of surgery, uh, which Amber is also addicted to. And, you know, she arrives to get her Zydrate and explains, like, how she's going to end up replacing Blind Mag after her eyes are repossessed from Gene Co., uh, which is the plan. Uh, and Blind Mag then, you know, drops by Shiloh's house. You know, you have the whole projection scene. And, you know, I thought it was interesting because Shiloh's, like, plain enough, like, no, like, I can't really talk to strangers. But, you know, it's just that conversation of, like, oh, well, like, I'm, I'm your god, mom. You know, there's nothing to worry about. And then Nathan is here. Uh, kicking Mag out of the house, and this leads into uh, the the pop punk ballad uh, with the Joan Jett cameo, <laughs> which you know, like I, you know, I said last week, like I I do listen to this soundtrack quite a bit. There are songs that were cut from the movie, uh, and I know, like initially when this came out, they also kind of did like a teaser type uh, soundtrack where they had like seven like six or seven songs on it for the initial uh, like release. And then they released the full theme, which I, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, but that, that pop punk ballad is one of the better songs in the movie. And there's a lot of energy, but the the whole thing just crescendos with Nathan just 
punching his daughter after she calls herself a fucking monster. And I remember the first time seeing that, and I'm just like, sit down. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And then when they went back into like real life, I'm like, wait, did he actually hit her then? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're like, <laughs> that was a little out of control. Yeah. I was seeing eight years, man. <laughs> different, a different time. <laughs> a different time, 2008. <laughs> I, I mean, 2052. Yeah, Wait. yeah, 2056. Much different times. <laughs> yeah, beating people comes back in style. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. Which they do have the cool futuristic kind of Blade run as well in there, mm-hmm. which is Although, very but well done. I, I just think it's hilarious that it's not going to be that long before it's 2056. <laughs> and just like, you know, I don't know, like I love watching those old, you know, futuristic movies where it's like in the year 2000, you're like, oh, that's 20 years ago. Where's my hover car? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you, you go. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of, it wasn't very futuristic. I mean, just a little bit. Uh-huh. Most we can totally do that, you know, just make the cities shittier and lots more screens everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's basically ad- advertisements everywhere. Yeah. And 3D hologram paintings, too. I mean, we already have those at Coachella, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, true. There we go. Just got to lean into that shit. Okay, yeah. everybody at the same time, lean into that shit. <laughs> Everything has to align perfectly. Uh, which, you know, unfortunately it's not the case for Amber, who is just having all, all so many issues, uh, with her surgery job that she just had, because, uh, you know, like, Roddy's just like, yo, it's, it's not that bad. He's not even really paying any attention to his daughter, uh, in this scene when she's moaning about her, her, her latest work. Uh, and as soon as, as soon as he sees her, like, he's like, oh shit, like, all right, don't worry. I'll I'll, I'll get our, one of our surgeons on it. You'll be good to go for tonight, uh, so you can continue your performance. And we all saw how that played out because uh, her face does not stay on her face. I did like how she kept sticking her fingers inside of her skin, and that was pretty gross and and, and cool. And you know, John, you were talking about this earlier, and like, and I was like agreeing with the whole like addiction to the pain pills that that it's like you know such a a huge issue uh, in the U.S. But uh, but to your point, like I kind of was a little more dismissive about the idea that people are getting lots of surgeries. But that's actually you're right. It's huge. Right. I mean, with the whole like Instagram model sort of, you know, influencer, everybody's got the same sort of eyebrow, lips, nose kind of thing going on. Yeah, there's like a lot of there's a lot of surgery going on and it's all to look like in a certain, you know, to, to, to fit into the certain mold. And now it makes sense. This rock copper is making more and more sense. People have been getting more, it's even sci, very sci-fi where people are just, not just getting plastic surgery, but they're, they're changing too. Yeah, blood uh, implants are huge. Definitely. All right, so where are we at at this point? Uh, we're, we're at the gene cops, kind of like rummaging through the basement. Mm-hmm. trying to figure out like what Nathan has been up to since he's uh, he's gone rogue in this case uh, and that's when Nathan realizes hey Shiloh is at home right now uh, and basically the gene cops had come in and stole Marnie's body so we, we kind of got like this whole like Dr. Free situation going on <laughs> with Nathan and his and his wife in this case. Uh, and, you know, we, we kind of like set the stage for like this oncoming bloodbath at the opera uh, from the uh, from the grave robber here. And, you know, wh- whoever is the last man or woman standing is going to inherit Jinko uh, in this case. And that's when everything starts to intertwine at this point. Uh, you have Amber's performance, which, of course, is uh, cut short due to tripping and her face falling off, uh, which kind of ties into later in the movie because that face is actually auctioned off to the highest bidder. 
uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it kind of set it up where uh, Bill Mosley's character murders the top bidders, and then Pavi, uh, the one who wears the mask, is the high bidder at that point. So he wears his sister's face, uh, which... I don't know how to feel about that, but I thought it was funny because, like, the face that Poppy wears initially, I'm trying to remember if that was, like, the director's girlfriend's face? It was something like that, which I thought was uh, interesting, too. I like that. That's a little Easter egg. Yeah, I wasn't sure who the face was originally. But they do show him without the skin on. He's kind of underneath did they ever explain that why i don't think they ever did it's interesting because she did too paris did as well i think there was a there was a little bit of a some online explanation about how supposedly the clamps that they use to adhere the faces to his do damage to his own face although that wouldn't explain why this part is so bad Mm -hmm. just that's why this part is so bad so that was a little part of it. Like, oh, the, the clamps are really fucking up his skin as well. Mm. And it sounds like ouchies. <sighs> Interesting that there was, this was the second, supposed to be the second one that there would have been, you know, like a prequel sort of story. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, you could do that because it does kind of, you know, where. We just kind of start up with in a world. I know that's and it made me wonder. I don't know if they ever book or any like sort of supplemental extra story stuff. That beginning animation, yeah, you know, yeah, would have aided really well into uh, some different formats. Uh, so getting back to the opera, uh, we have Blind Mag's final song, uh, which closes with her gouging out her own mechanical eyes, which is Jinko property, uh, stating that she would rather be blind than basically be Jinko's uh, property at this case. Uh, and of course, in this moment, her cords that were suspended her in the air uh, snap but, you know, they're actually cut in this case. Uh, and she is impaled on the metal rods of the fence that was part of, you know, the uh, stage design. And so Mag's just there, you know, ar- back arched, impaled, dying on the stage. And, of course, the audience at this point is just horrified at what they're seeing. But Roddy assures them, like, hey, don't worry. Like, this is all just... Part of the act, because what else are you to say at that point? Oh, show's over. Nope, the show must go on. If there's one thing to know about show business, it goes on. It 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 keeps going. Couple <laughs> <Up on> timing. <laughs> the funny thing is, when she gets impaled on that fence, when he comes and takes her down or takes her <laughs> off stage, she just, just leaves her up there and mm-hmm. on the fence for the rest of the scene. She's just back there hanging out. It's commitment. <laughs> and very Greek uh, tragedy, of course. Um, ripping her eyes out. In right. My Greek mythology is uh, Oedipus, I believe, pulls out his own eyes, if I remember. When he finds out he's been banging his mom. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, isn't there a couple of references when it comes to Paris and Pavel, where the other brother is like, should kiss or something? Like, there's like weird references. No, Pavel is the the brother who is saying that him and the psych, her and the psycho brother have some sort of sexual tension going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, these guys are great. (laughs) Well, we already know that she was hooking up with the grave robber. Right. In exchange, sex in exchange for drugs. So, yeah, at the opera. And then what happens to Shiloh? She. She runs away. So. How does it end with her? I'm forgetting at this point. So, let's see. After her dad dies, um, 
she there's you know there's a whole lot more development but then at one point doesn't she just go out the front door and then like because all the all the audience members are looking at her as she's leaving big old bright light but then she just kind of disappears and at the very very end there's uh like a sort of a wrap-up scene where the kids like the the uh ronnie's kids are like talking about how amber is now in charge of the company and uh and things are going to go on Mm -hmm. and of course paris's character comes back at the post i don't know if it's i forget if it's a post credit scene oh credits did i miss that what does she do where we see her come back, she's she's got two henchmen with her, and she's and the implication sort of bid for power to take over. Well, that, that was that wasn't a post credit. That was like before the credits, because that's when they and explain who the highest <laughs> uh, bidder was for her face. But I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting because like this whole time. Uh, Roddy sets up like this trap for the repo man where, you know, he's plotting to have Shiloh kill her, her father. Uh, and, you know, he has his, you know, attire on like his repo man suit. So she doesn't know that it's him. And when Shiloh hits him in the head with the shovel, uh, that's when she realizes, oh, fuck, like that's my dad. Because like the he- the helmet comes off in this case. Uh, and, you know, you have like this whole uh, revelation of how. Uh, Nathan had been the one making Shiloh sick all of these years by giving her poisoned medication. And, you know, this whole time, Nathan's, like, trying to plead his case, trying to say, like, you know, I was just trying to keep you safe, yada, yada, he yada. It, right? No, no, it was oh, Ronnie who was the medication. Correct. Right? Okay. Also, character, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, she doesn't know that, so, you know... Ronnie's just trying to feed her whatever information is going to lead to her killing her dad so she can take control over the company so Ronnie's kids don't go anywhere near it. But, of course, that doesn't happen. Uh, Shiloh basically refuses to kill her dad, and that's when, you know, the lights turn off and you have the typical, like, stage play. Oh, there's a gunshot, but obviously it wasn't Shiloh. It was Ronnie uh, actually shooting Nathan in this case. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, that was both of their final moments in this case. was resolved the he never like cured Shiloh or improved her sickness. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the implication is just that since Paul Sorvino's character was kind of dead. That she'll recover naturally, and of course, also uh, he killed the, her mother by poison mm-hmm. in the same way, and made it look like uh, the dad uh, like messed up somehow, right? Like messed up his right. the mother or helping her, and killed her. Very uh, Machiavellian. Yep. What? Ronnie was smart. <laughs> No, it's a good story uh, and good. Uh, it's definitely an opera, you know? Right. It feels like an opera in that way where the story is really big and grandiose. Yeah, the... mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a lot of fun. Definitely. That's my favorite critique of any horror movie now that I've noticed myself on these uh, podcasts. It was fun. <laughs> I'm gonna try to use other words, as opposed to not fun, which uh, there are a lot enjoyable, of enjoyable, interesting, <laughs> grotesque. <laughs> These are all good, good uh, adjectives for horror movies. The music is good, definitely of its time, very much, and the look of the whole movie very much feels like an MTV video. Uh, for that type of music. You know, there were bands putting out those songs with videos that looked like that back at that time. Slipknot. <laughs> Slipknot. Mm-hmm. They're a little heavier, but I guess I, it's, it's some way. Maybe but, I'm getting that. Oh, well. Rock opera. There needs to be more rock opera. We don't have that right now, really. Either. True. 
no one's really doing stuff like that. It paved the way. It, it's not the first uh, rock opera to be sort of extremely like uh, pop music. You know, there were definitely, um, I'm trying to remember because I looked, there was that did a similar thing, but it definitely was ahead. America, you know, coming out, and people were kind of like, "Wow, I, Green Day is putting out this, you know, That's rock right. opera musical." But I feel like this kind of this kind of paved helped pave the way for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it You're wouldn't welcome. have to be classic rock or classical music of the moment pop music. Well, it still looks like it's going to be a, a a hard thing to sell either way to the studios. Um, I mean, this movie was made for like eight point five million. I'm trying to remember like what it actually made theatrically, but it didn't have like a big release uh, since you know it only did that limited run. Mm, I wonder if it broke even. It definitely had cult success at the time it. Came. Mm-hmm hearing about it and how it was like oh you gotta check out this movie you gotta hear this thing you know um, it had a buzz around it a bit you know hugely successful and I imagine it's gotta be building up a cult following too at this point I feel like it's popular or gaining more popularity as it I haven't checked too deep. Although I did look on YouTube, and uh, there are lots of the songs sectioned out into singles. Mm-hmm. And all the comments are all really positive. Definitely a fan base. And, and so a lot of those videos had like a... Checking them out. Yeah, maybe uh, for... Fans of Buffy, more people will go back to watch the musical episode of Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's got to be a lot of Buffy fans out there who are watching this. And this also, I think, must have come out relatively close to Dr. Horrible. Oh, right. I forgot about that one. It was kind of reminding me of that. I think it was similar time-ish. Mm-hmm. That was also in 2008. Oh, nice. Same here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was kind of a lot of that stuff going on back at. That's cool. Good movie. (laughs) All right, so looking ahead, uh, I know we haven't released our full schedule. John, I know you already had a movie in mind. Tali, like, what what are you thinking for this month for your, uh, your fear of aging? I already submitted mine. It was the de- the taking of Deborah Logan. You need another one. Oh, I need two. Yeah. <gasps> I'm going to need a minute. Okay. I'll tell you tonight. Okay. Well, we'll do the taking of Deborah Logan next week then. So, um, is there like a one that you guys have think we should really do? What What, what kind of a, opinions do you guys have? I mean, I picked the man who could cheat death because I wanted to go for kind of an. Mm-hmm. Someone mentioned, of course, Dorian Gray, which is oh, that's right, obvious choice that we didn't quite think of as we were brainstorming. There's a few Dorian Gray movies. Obviously, that's a big one, but we could do Dorian Gray. You always loved that book growing up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, unless I come up with a better idea. I'll pick a Dorian Gray movie. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll plan on the take-in of Deborah Logan uh, for next Wednesday. Sounds good. Then we'll cool. move over to John's pick the week after that. Uh, but all in all, like, really big fan of this movie. Uh, if you were a fan of this, there, are, there is a spinoff that also has a sequel, uh, which... You know, you, you kind of got some of the aesthetics of what to expect because there is the Devil's Carnival within Repo the Genetic Opera, uh, 
which makes sense uh, in this case because it plays directly into uh, the devil's character. Uh, and this one came out in 2012. Uh, you, you do have a lot of the same people involved just playing different characters uh, as Anthony well. Anthony Stewart head too? Um, oh, I don't think he is. I know Paul Servino, Mosley, and Terrence uh, Sedunik are all in it. Boo. I mean, not that, but you know what I mean. Anthony <laughs> Stewart head, man. Yeah, so you have the Devil's Carnival and then the Ali, Ali Lula of the Devil's Carnival, which is the, the sequel to that one. And they were like three years apart from one another. Uh, but some pretty pretty interesting characters in, in both of them. So if you enjoy this one, go check those out. Uh, since they're, they're spin-offs of Repo, the genetic opera. And uh, of course, you know, you can find, as John had mentioned, a lot of them are kind of like separated as singles on YouTube as well. And there are quite a few out there that did not make the cut for the movie. Uh, that kind of like give you a little bit more background on some of the characters as well. But, uh, yeah, in the meantime, I think that pretty much wraps things up tonight. I think so, too. So Time with... changes. Killing me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's cut it here tonight, then. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight for another episode of Handle with Scare. This has been episode 58, talking Repo the Genetic Opera. And we'll see you guys back next Wednesday when we talk all about the taking of Deborah Logan. Enjoy your weeks, and we'll see you then. Bye. I kept thinking of... Uh...